This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 317. And the quote of the day is, you are never too young to learn, and you're never too old to change. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 317. I hope you're digging the Daniel Glass podcast or the Daniel Glass show on the Drummer's Resource Podcast, I should say. Uh, If you could check them out, they're right in the stream with all the other podcasts, so you'll just see it. It'll be in parentheses. It'll say Daniel Glass show, and you can check them out. It's a unique perspective on Daniel, his career. He always has uh, either a guest or he talks about some things that he's contemplating or advice to improve your playing or deconstructing music composition, all kinds of great stuff that's going on there over there at the Daniel Glass Show. So check that out for sure. Also, if you want to sign up for the email list, you can get my ebook, Stick Control Variations. Plus, you'll get an email every Monday and Friday. Every Monday is my 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 Monday mix, Nick's Monday mix. It just be a list of all the stuff that I'm listening to, that I'm checking out, some interesting things that you may dig. Also, the latest release of the podcast. And then on Friday, I send out a wrap up email, and that'll give you all the content that was released during the week. And uh, so, if you want to do that, you can just go to drummersresource.com, sign up. It's 100 percent free, obviously. Um, another thing I want to let you know about is that Casio Music is a as a sponsor for, of the podcast. Initially, they were giving twenty percent off, and now they're giving twenty five percent off. So if you spend one hundred forty nine bucks at Casio Music, you can save twenty five percent by using the promo code POD two five. And you can go to Casio Music C A S C I O Music dot com. Order whatever you need up to 100 or over 149 bucks. You get 25% off. That is no small gesture from Casio. And these guys have been in business for over 70 years. And there's a reason why. And it's because they offer great products. They offer great service and they get the right instrument in your hands at the right price. So check them out. CasioMusic.com. Also save some bread. Use the promo code POD25 at checkout and that'll save you 25% on your order over 149 bucks. So there you have that. Boom. Now I want to get into this conversation. This is with Jerry Murata. Jerry Murata is the brother of Rick Murata, who I've already had on on the podcast. Rick uh, obviously played with Steely Dan, played with a, a ton of people. Uh, and Jerry is equally as accomplished playing with everyone from Hall & Oates to Peter Gabriel to Indigo Girls. He's played on Sarah McLachlan Records. He's, he's, he's done it all. And now he has a bunch of projects that he's working on under his own name with some other people. He plays with his brother Rick in another band. Uh, so... And you'll hear his enthusiasm and his his desire to always be playing. So he's he's got like 17 different bands going on, and he's just really, really into uh, just playing live as much as he can. So just a really interesting conversation. We talk about working with uh, with work, working with some of those legends like Peter Gabriel and Hall and Oates. We talk about his career now, his new projects, and just a really great conversation, a really great guy to have on the podcast. So I'm super pumped to bring this to you. So without further ado, let's get into it with the one and only Jerry Murata. Jerry, how are you, my man? Thank you for doing this. Hey, man. So I've had I've had uh, father and sons on here, but I've never had a brother and a brother. 
so uh-huh. I had I had Rick on here. It was a while ago, and we actually it was me, it was me, your brother, and John to Christopher. Actually, I remember this. And John would just like it was funny because I never announced that he was on the show, or never announced that John was there, and then John would just chime in every once in a while. Just hear him. Would <laughs> yeah. hear him. It was like who's this guy in the background? Oh yeah, that's funny. Well, John's a he's a good friend to both my brother and I beyond his years at Zildjian. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's a great guy. He and, is a good uh, dude. He, he's been very, you know, uh, very kind to me too. My brother and I, um, you know, we did the Murata brothers band. We, 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 we started the Murata, Murata brothers band this summer mm-hmm. on Martin's vineyard. And here I am. I'm not picking my nose. I'm scratching my mustache. <laughs> they can't see you anyway. It's fine. And John was at almost every, every gig mm-hmm. all summer long and was helping my brother, like set his drums up, break him down. Right. You know, my brother's he. You know, I'm I'm just a, I'm drum. I mean, I'm a drummer. Right. I mean, I do many things, but but I play gigs constantly. I'm always mm-hmm. playing. And my brother is more. He's gotten a bit a bit away from that, and you know, gotten into the composing thing, and right? TV thing, and then the incredibly large checks you get in the mail for writing the theme song to everybody loves raymond i was gonna say he wrote that didn't he yeah he wrote that and and uh mailbox money man uh, that's bought him like three houses i think really three different houses that's insane good for him yeah he lives all over yeah he's just made a lot of money off that so you know the thought of throwing your drums in the back of a pickup truck which is what (laughs) i'm gonna do after we get off right and drive to a club in mount dora to play a gig with uh, Jeff Whitfield and Bobby Croft, two guys that I've been playing with. Um, I mean, I do that kind of stuff and flew down here. Right. You know, I do that kind of stuff all the time. My brother's not really, he's not really used to doing that kind of thing. He's just not into it anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't say he's not into it. It's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly what, what, what the, what the deal is with him, but, but you know, he still plays great. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just doesn't, he doesn't play that much, but over the summer we played, we did this thing. We played every week for eight weeks. Right. And uh, it, yeah, that was a gas. But anyway, that was the, um, but John to Christopher was, he's been a great friend and a big supporter. Yeah. He's a good, he's definitely a good dude. He, he actually connected me with, uh, with Rick and with Steve Gad and everyone. So, yeah. um, and I'm guessing, you know, with your brother, I'm sure he's just, he's focused on other things. And I know even when I started this podcast, you know, my playing sort of stopped or slowed down because I was like, if I'm trying to build this thing, I can't do 50 things at once, you know? Yeah. So not that I'm comparing sure. myself to your brother, but, but, uh, but I think I understand because I tried, I've done that. I've tried to do everything and I just, I do a lot. I can do a lot of things really poorly or I can do one thing well. Yeah. Well, I'm suffering from that very thing right now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's true. It's funny, but I really, I, and I really, I'm serious. I'm I'm so spread out now. Mm-hmm. I've got so many things I want to do, right? And so many things that are that I'm trying to get off the ground, and a bunch of bands. And then I've got Dreamland, which is a big residential recording studio in the Woodstock area. Mm-hmm. That's in an old church, and and I and I'm you know like I'm running that, and on top of everything else, right? And all all this, the sessions I'm doing. Uh, production work and writing and and running uh, like two weeks ago i ran up to toronto drove up to toronto to do a meeting with um with it was during the toronto film festival to meet with some pbs people about some programming for pbs um particularly 
maybe a music program awesome um that gets that's get that comes from dreamland from the studio dreamland so i'm like i've got and then i've got this thing i'm doing down here in florida with with jeff um whitfield and bobby croft and and then the, i've got the fragile fate going and the Murata brothers i started that over the summer with my brother right and then I've got this band called real in the years we're doing like the we're doing the music of steely dan mm-hmm. which we've for about a year and a half and that's like 10 to 13 people in that band and trying to or just just trying to 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 manage that is it's overwhelming and then i've got uh, like other projects and then other work and then of course i forget about the easiest one is in to some degree is the security project Mm -hmm. and that that's the um that's the thing that i'm doing with trey gunn from king crimson and Happy Rhodes, who's a wonderful uh, singer-songwriter who both Trey and I worked with uh, through the years. And it's basically the music of Peter Gabriel from a period of time that I worked with Peter. Right. From 77 to 86. Right. Like his first three or four records. So that that's um, – you know, that's another. That's just one one of the many things that I have going on. I'm, it's fun. It's all great, but I'm overloaded. You know. Well, I was going to ask: Is it a matter of necessity? Is it a matter of you want to be doing all this work? Is it a matter of not being able to say no? Well, it's all of those things. Yeah. I mean, this. You know, like it's what I do. So I'm a mu- I'm I'm a muso. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a musician first and foremost. So I'm always going to do that. Right. You know. I'm playing in a jazz trio um, and we play, you know, at least three or four times a month playing gigs, which has been really fucking, sorry, I shouldn't say, but really fun. You can say whatever you want. Super, super fun, you know, doing a whole different kind of thing than I've been, you know, I've been known to do. Right. So that I've been doing that for like probably three years and that's, that's been, that's been so great. So much fun. Nice. Playing with some great people. Um, that's just one, you know, like one of them, you know, the many things. And, you know, doing these gigs, I mean, you probably know this um, from playing. I mean, sometimes I have to drive an hour and a half to a gig. Yeah. You know, yep. especially these jazz gigs. You know, <laughs> like I'm, I'm driving all over the place, an hour and a half, two hours, set up, play, play for a couple hours, pack up, put shit, the stuff in my car and, and go home. It's like know? the farther you have to drive, the less money you make. <laughs> Oh my God! The gigs, the gigs around the corner pays a thousand dollars. I have this other gig. It's it's three hours away. It's forty bucks a person. <laughs> you know what? I don't even think about it. No, honestly, I don't think about the money. No, I really don't. I mean, the gigging thing has gotten so bizarre. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and this was like somebody here. It was a guy here, a bass player that that down in this area, who I know was saying, uh, you know, fifteen years ago. I used to do gigs. I used to work all the time for and get and make 150 bucks a gig. Right. It's 15 years later now, maybe more, and I'm playing all of these gigs and they're 150 bucks a gig. Yeah. Like it hasn't gone up. Nope. I mean, the, the pay on those gigs generally hasn't gone up. In fact, in some cases, it's gone down. Yeah. Places are just having to try and anything they can to, to keep music alive in, in their, especially the jazz stuff. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's a funny thing, 
But, you know, we're not doing it for the money. There's no question. So let me ask you this, though, because I'm a I'm a positive dude. I don't I don't like to look at the negative side of things. I don't like to be pessimistic, but I'm also a realist. And it's it's difficult to make a living playing drums. I mean, that's like there's no there's no if, ands or buts about that. No, um, no doubt. So what is the what is the answer if the gigs only pay a hundred dollars or one hundred and fifty dollars? Unless you're on like a you know a bigger gig or something like that, um, what is the answer if you want to do this as as a career? You know, do you suggest people? I mean, you've been you're an established player. You've been doing it for years. You know, and you have a lot of a lot of very um, very a list celebrities on your on your resume. So what about if, if you were getting into it now and you were, you know, 25 or 30 years old, 35 years old, uh, do you, would you suggest that people try to do it full time or would you say, Hey, keep your day job and pick the gigs and that you want to play on the side? I, you know what? That's, um, that's a very difficult question to answer. Yeah. For one, I would say move back in with your parents. <laughs> you want to move back in with your parents. If you want to just play drums for a living, right? It helps to be young. Mm-hmm. It helps to be 19 and moving back in with your parents as opposed to, you know, 40 and moving back in with your parents. But, you know, it's really hard for me to say. It's, it really is. I have I have no words of wisdom for people about how to make it work, how to make a living. You know, you just got to – you better love it. I mean, and you better not be doing it because you think you're going to get rich from it. Because right. if that's if that's, um, if that's your motivation – then, uh, you know, go to college and get a, you know, get a degree in business and finance or something. Yeah. get a job at Wall Street yeah. if you're looking to, to make a living. Um, but it probably doesn't hurt to have a, a, a job, you know, mm-hmm. to, if, if you can figure out a way to have a job and uh, subsidize the playing thing. Right. I mean, look, if you're young, if you're at a certain age and you're in a band, you know, and this pertains mostly to younger people who can sort of are willing to live, you know, um, hand to mouth, right. you know, and drive around in a van. You know, if you're a band, it's one thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you got you to gotta put everything you have into it and, and, and hope something happens. Yeah. But be just like an all around, like not session player, but but, you know, like a guy who's just doing, you know, various gigs with various people mm-hmm. that. that I don't know. That's a complicated, that's complicated. It's tough. And I know that even, you know, like we were just talking about, like you, you're working on so many things and you have so many irons in the fire. And I stress that a lot to people that people are like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to be a session drummer. I'm like, you might want to, you may want to double, you may want to think about that before. Do not do that. Yeah. Before you go and do that. The other problem with session drummers is I don't know. There's probably a handful, and I mean a small handful of guys that are killing it. I can't think of too many. One guy, I'm, I always forget his name. He's the guy that plays with James Taylor, and he's playing with Steely Dan. Keith Carlock? Keith Carlock. Okay. And I'm not sure, when you look at those guys, it's funny, but even Steve Gadd, you know, he's on tour with Clapton, then he's on tour with James Taylor. Did, I don't know how much you follow Steve. But he's on tour a lot. So he's not opting to sit at home in New York, where she doesn't live there anymore, and, and get calls to do session work. You know what I'm saying? The session thing, I don't even know. I don't know how much that 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 how much how relevant that is anymore. Yeah, I agree. There's another guy, Aaron Sterling, who does a lot of sessions too. He did, you know, the last couple of John Mayer records and I, I mean he's always working. He's a Hollywood guy and 
you know, he's always, he's always doing that thing. And, you know, the road, the road is tough too. You know, there's, you got family and kids and all that stuff to think about too. And it's like, it's, yeah. it's rough. It's definitely rough. I want to backtrack. Um, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, about how you got started. I think it's a really interesting story with you and your brother. Um, so what was like, what was the family dynamic growing up where you guys sort of, he's your older brother, right? Yeah. Okay. So how, what was the family dynamic there? He's eight or nine years older than me. Okay. So was there, was who started playing first? Was there, what was the, what was the dynamic there? And, and how did you guys both create successful careers in, in music? I think that that's like, for one person to do it is impressive for two people to do it in the same family is, is, you know, even more so impressive. Yeah. Especially that we're both drummers. Right. It's like when you're looking at Steve Picaro, Jeff Picaro, Mike Picaro, and they play keyboards, bass and drums. That's one thing, you know, right. and they're in Toto, Yeah, but they have a band together. But, um, so my brother and I, um, first of all, you know, he, he didn't start playing the drums till he was in college mm -hmm. and, and I was 10. So he brought the drums into the house. I had been playing like taking saxophone lessons um, or clarinet or both. And then my brother got the drums into the house and he started banging around on them. And when he wasn't banging around on them, I would go up into the attic of our house mm -hmm. where the drums were and I would bang around on them and sort of like copy what he was doing. Mm -hmm. But the Andy Newmark connection was that Andy lived in the area. So he, you know, he was like 16, 17 and he was a kid. He came over and he was giving my brother some pointers. Right. You know, and then, uh, and I would like basically listen to what they were doing and then they would leave and I would just try to do what, what, what he was doing. <laughs> right. so, so that's how it all started. And my brother got really good very fast. <clears throat> like within two years, he was playing professionally, maybe right. less. And did he just work that much at it or was he just naturally gifted? Both. Yeah. I think it was both. Yeah. Um, both. Yeah. He was naturally gifted, but he also, you know, he, we were playing, if he wasn't up there, I was up there. Right. So it's like tag team drummers. Mm -hmm. So our pa poor parents. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Crazy. So that's how that all began. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. My brother, uh, mostly I think through a guy named David Spinoza, who's mm -hmm. a session guitar player who also lived in our area, they started playing in a band together. Okay. And then and then Spinoza broke into the session scene in New York when he was a teenager. I mean he was like a he was like a phenomenon. And then he brought my brother along with him to start playing on records. This is back when there was this there were you know if you wanted drums on a record you had to hire a drummer. Right. <laughs> there was no there was no drum machine, no there was nothing. Yeah. There was no technology. It's like, you want drums? Drummer. And back then, there were people who would do publishing demos of songs. Mm -hmm. You know, they had, there was a lot of that work where you were just playing on someone's song demo. Right. They, I mean, they you still know? kind of do that in Nashville, right? I mean, there's, a, still, there's still a bit of that demo, which is such a crazy thing to me that they, they create a, a whole song or a whole record only to pitch it to someone to re-record it. Right. Which is just a crazy concept that... Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, in the old days, there was a very simple song demo. Yeah. Back then. Okay. Very simple. And But nowadays, people are doing very extensive, incredibly extensive demos. I mean, mm -hmm. you, can, you, you have access to you know everything. Drum right. loops, drum blah, 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 replace drums, loop things, and 
bass samples and samples, you know, it's, it's overwhelming. Yes. So strings, orchestras, woodwind, brass. Yeah. 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 Like you can basically, you know, with a computer, you can do tremendous amount. Yeah. Which I don't know if it's good or bad, but But, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad either, but I will say this. It's, it's what people do more and more now is song construction Mm -hmm. rather than song writing. Like, like, you know, like you take a song like bridge over troubled waters, you know, that if Paul Simon sits down at a piano or guitar and he sings that song, you're going to, you're going to be in tears. I mean, it's a classic, classic song written the, he, he worked on the song itself. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, people will start with drum loops and then they'll add like other funky stuff. And, you know, they, they just like kind of cobble together a song around the bits and pieces that they have. Right you now. Right. And like a collage in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's less focus on how strong is the hook? What's the pre-chorus? Like, is this verse good? You know, right. what's the melody like? But the chord changes. Mm-hmm. Should it do that? There, there's much less um, attention to that. Do you think you can still create music that is really organic and authentic and can move you using those forms of of song? Let's call it song construction. Right. You mean with uh, with samples and yeah. loops and yeah. And, uh, do you do I think you can? I mean, yeah, I do. Yeah. I do think you can. Can anybody do that? No. Right. But, you know, someone who's a really gifted writer, if they don't get too carried away with the technology, mm-hmm. there are still people who, who have a knack for writing. Right, right. And that person is going to write something. I think they're going to write something great no matter what. Right, but right. No, I agree. I find uh, so many people that I work with, you know, like, for instance, I've been working, I had been working with. These two brothers, they're the sons of a good friend of mine. I started working with them. They were like 15 years old. And we got into the studio together, and they weren't writing songs. You know, They were starting the idea of a song. And then I started to – I went in the studio with them one day. And then after about a half an hour, I said, you know what? You guys need to spend some time working on songs. Mm-hmm. Like try to write a song on the guitar. They were playing guitar players before – before you start recording it, right? Stay away from Pro Tools. Try, try to do some. Just write the mostly write the song um, before before you start recording it. Yeah, yeah. And everybody starts just start immediately starts recording. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I, I mean, look, there are people that are going to do great things with anything. Of course, you know? of course. But yeah. for the most part, I think there's a lot of garbage mm-hmm. out because of you know, computers and garage band and, you know, things that people, and, and then there's also, there's some music out there that would have never been written by people who, yes. you know, without the use of pro tools, loops and garage band and, and all of that. I think the, the negative aspect of it is that people who are devoid of talent and skill can still produce music that is, you know, may not, may not have been produced, but then there's other people on the other side who are extremely talented and can create some amazing things with this technology. I always tell my wife with social media, I always say, basically social media is like giving everyone their own television show and not everyone should have their own television show. (laughs) Exactly. I probably shouldn't even have my own podcast. Who knows? 
Well, but what the hell, you know? Well, technology affords you the the ability to have your own podcast, right? Right, and I think you know, I think cream rises to the top. I think if you're putting out crappy music, then I just I don't think it's gonna it's it's not gonna catch on and and go, you know, um, as as much. The early days of the Murata brothers. Well, with for me, my brother started. He he was working in bands. I followed him, mm-hmm. and then the interesting, the big moment for me was when I was sixteen. I went to summer school after 11th grade to graduate a year early. Mm-hmm. And my brother had done a record with a band that was on Columbia and they were going to go out on tour and they wanted him. They asked him if he would tour with them. He, he couldn't do that. But he said, my little brother is a really great drummer. Why don't you try him? And so I went and played with them and I got this job to play with these guys. They had like a top 40 single right? and they were in Columbia and, and, so I went, it's just was a week before summer school ended. Wow. So I went to my teachers and I explained the situation to them and they were very kind and they let me take my final exams on the road with me. So I took my awesome. well, two classes, believe me, very easy to graduate a year early. You don't have to be super smart, Yeah. but I took my final exams on the road with me and, and I went out on tour with this band, Arthur Hurley and Gottlieb. Um, and and that was my the that was my first my break. My brother, totally responsible for that. I mean, he if it wasn't for him, I would have never had that job. And then, I mean, that was what seventy. I'm I'm looking here, seventy three to seventy five, right? Yeah, that was nineteen seventy three because I was supposed to graduate in seventy four. Okay, from high school, but in seventy three, I was going out on the road with Arthur Early and Gottlieb. Right in the summer, like in August of seventy three. So how did how did that lead to? I'm guessing it went to Peter Gabriel right from there. No, that, no, uh, no, 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 Nick. No, I went from Arthur Hurley and Gottlieb. Right. Then I I, I moved into Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I started living in Manhattan. I was about 17 or 18, and my brother was working with a singer, saw a songwriter named Allie Willis, mm-hmm. who eventually wrote the theme to Friends, the show Friends. Oh, wow. And then wrote numerous earth wind and fire songs including september and she wrote a lot of stuff with maurice white so we were in at bearsville studio in woodstock and we were recording a demo for Allie. and in the studio was john hall who was the guitar player and leader of a band called orleans mm-hmm. so john and my brother knew each other and john said to my brother we're looking for a drummer another drummer um and my brother said like my brother Jerry is great. And so I went back up to Woodstock and auditioned to play with Orleans. But that audition, they, were, they auditioned a lot of drummers. And I got that job to play with Orleans, which, by the way, at the time was like my favorite band in the world. Huh. So that was like getting to play with the Beatles. Right, right, right. So, so, and they had a song called Dance With Me, which was their first hit. Then I joined the band. And we went out to L.A. We toured and then went out to L.A. Excuse me. And then we recorded a record called Waking and Dreaming. And there was a song called Still the One on there. So that was a huge hit. Yeah. 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 I I was going to say it's still I still hear it on the radio. It's on the radio all the time. And so I played on that when I was about 18 years old. So that that was Orleans. That went on for about a year and a half, two years. And then John Hall quit the band. And there was an, an interim period where the band was in limbo and I got an opportunity to play an English singer named Peter Gabriel. This is in 1977. 
So I didn't know who Peter Gabriel was. I'd never heard of him right. or Genesis. Right, right. I certainly was not. I wasn't a Prague fan or anything. I was. Mm. I was in Orleans. I was. I was listening to, to the Doobie Brothers, <laughs> right. Steve and you know, I was. That's the kind of stuff I would. You know, Little Feet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Honey Ray, and then a lot of black music. That was my thing mm-hmm. growing up and learning to play the drums was exclusively to Motown, Stax. That was my thing. I mean, I was really snobby about it. But when I was a kid, if it wasn't black, it wasn't good. Right. You know? Right. That, that was my, I just loved R&B. Uh-huh. Me too, man. Me too. That's the shit that I really, I really liked the most. Yeah. This is an interesting little tidbit. So John Hall, I guess, is a politician now is in the US, in the House of Representatives. Not anymore. Oh, he's not? But he was. He was oh, a congressman. Okay. For, he oh, did okay. a, one or two terms as a, as a New York state congressman. Oh, uh, yeah. That's cool. My good friends at Musicians Institute in Hollywood, California, want to let you know that if your playing has hit a ceiling, the best way to break through that ceiling is to get expert critique from expert players. And you can do that at Musicians Institute. And whether you're a bass player, a drummer, a guitar player, a celloist, whatever you play, you can learn all of that at Musicians Institute and more. You can find out about their great curriculum, their amazing staff, and state-of-the-art facility by going to mi.e. D-U. Not too far north of Hollywood, California is DW Drums. And I encourage you, if you're in the LA area, check out DW Drums in Oxnard, California. You can go up, you can take a tour, you can see how they hand make these drums right here in the United States. And they have been a partner in this podcast. They've been a sponsor of this podcast for a very long time, since the beginning. And they always support drumming initiatives like this all over the world. So I recommend if you can't get to LA or you can't get to Oxnard to check out DW, be sure to check them out at dwdrums.com. Follow them on social media. Check out the great stuff that they have going on there at DW Drums. Now, let's get back into it with Jerry Murata. So tell me about working with Peter Gabriel. I'm a huge Peter Gabriel fan, by the way. So I started working with Gabriel in 1977. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about him or who he was. Right. But when I got this offer that that Sky needed a drummer for, for a tour, and I listened to that first solo record. Are you that much of a fan? You know the first record? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Salisbury Hill and mm-hmm. Slow Burn and, you know, all that's, excuse me, waiting for the big one, um, Humdrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, I listened to that record and I thought, this music is so off the wall <laughs> and there's absolutely no funk. Right. There's no funk. Right. There's nothing even slightly funky. <laughs> there's no black. There's no funk. There's none of that. And it's like very English from a prog English prog background. Yeah. And you know, when you think about it, those bands, they were much more influenced by, by ethnic, like Celtic and, and, uh, and also classical music. Right. You know, um, the English thing, the moody blues, Procol Harum, and then even Genesis and, uh, and, and bands like that, you know, mm-hmm. yes. Orchestral, you know, they didn't yeah. necessarily have that black thing. I, I, I can't say it enough. So were you like, I'm not, I'm not into this. I don't really want to do this or. No, I was, I was, this is very interesting. Okay. It's not my wheelhouse. Right. Um, I think I'd probably rather be in Orleans in Orleans, but it's going to England. It pays well. Mm -hmm. It's a good gig. 
and Tony Levin, it's playing with Tony Levin, which, which was, would, was a great thing for me. Um, playing the Tony Levin, the bass player. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, you know, I, I, I was looking for a gig. Yeah, you know? of course. There were, there it was. And that was a challenge. It was a challenge for me. Mm -hmm. Just like in the last four or five years doing the jazz thing. Like I didn't study that stuff. I mean, I, I listened to a lot of jazz when right. I was young, but, but it was, it was a way outside of my wheelhouse, mm -hmm. but I have a, a strong interest in it. And, and I have a, I think I have a talent for it. Like I love swing to swing. Yeah. I love playing brushes and you know, well, there's some element of like, I mean, there's the element of the, of in the, in backbeat and in R and B, especially like there's that element of, of swing too, you know? Absolutely. You know, so maybe it's like, it was maybe you swing. have some natural thing that you're feeling, you know, because if you're attracted to that, then maybe when you're going over into swinging, you're like, Oh, it's just kind of like playing groove, you know? Totally. Yeah. Swing. The swing thing is, you know, it, it, it's, it, it really gets me off. Right. Right. So, so yeah, the Gabriel thing was, it was a, you know, it was a good job. It paid well. Right. My band had broken up for the moment and I, I was, you know, I was sad, you know? Mm -hmm. So I took the job and I was in England. I mean, first stop was England. I had never been there. So nice. I mean, what could be bad about it? Of course. So then and that, that grew into a 10 year relationship with Peter. Right. Cause I was going to say, cause you recorded a bunch of records with them and toured with them and yeah, I worked with them for from 77 up until around 86. Right. Recording and touring with him. So what were some of the things that that you learned playing with him? Was there was there like some eye-opening experiences? Was there cuz you were young? I mean, you were still relatively young, right? I'm 20, 21. Yeah. I mean, I was 20, 21. Did you feel like, like you were going to school? No. No. No, I didn't feel like that. You know, when you're 20, 21, I'd already been in Arthur Hurley and Gottlieb. Right. I'd already been in Orleans, you know, I don't, I was, you know, I had a swagger. Yeah. I was going to say by 2021, I already knew everything. So I couldn't, <laughs> I had, you know, of course you do, <laughs> yeah. but that's what I, you know, and I did, yeah. not only did I know everything, but I also had already a background like, and I had played on a few records, you know, I toured with a few other, I'd done some tours with folk artists. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was doing it, man. Yeah. I was like, you're in it. I, I was grooving back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so of course. I had a bit of a swagger, you know, so when I came to the Gabriel thing, but I'm not like that. I don't, I still to this day, I don't think about myself like about what, how great I am or what I've done or, right. I don't, I just don't do that. I'm always, I'm much more thinking about what, what I want to do, what more I can do, mm -hmm. what I, what I should be doing, what, what, you know breaking new ground broadening my vistas right i'm always that so i'm never just sitting there like thinking about how great i am right so the gabriel thing was a challenge it was a little scary mm -hmm. i mean this is you know this wasn't like playing you know soul man you know right. or some stacks or motown dancing in the street this wasn't this wasn't that mm -hmm. this was like you know i don't know if you're how familiar with the first gabriel record you are but you know, fairly more familiar. The Burgermeister, more up on the Burgermeister. I will find. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Beep, beep, beep. I will find out. Beep, 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 beep. It was like a cartoon. Like it was not 
it was it was unbelievable like how do i play this right it's not playing you know like a straight groove mm -hmm. it's it's and the songs all started one way morphed you know even salisbury hill you know it's in an odd time signature right you know yeah none of that stuff was what i had been doing uh -huh. so it was it was you know in a lot of ways it was great you know it just forced me outside of my comfort zone and i think that's the key right is that that's the key to growth is constantly doing things that you're not comfortable with or things that scare you or you know anything that that really pushes your pushes your boundaries yeah i, I mean in theory that's what you want right now having said that at that in that period of time the session musician you know living in new york and and doing sessions that didn't take long at all for me to not want to do that because that's you're coming in and you're just basically doing what you think they want you to do. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a very strange world and it's not, not particularly creative, you know, with Peter, I mean, Peter was, and that, that I was so much more a band guy mm -hmm. than I was like live in New York and play on sessions. I never wanted to do that right. ever. Right. You'd rather either be in the band or be on the road. I'd rather be in a band. I mean, yeah. I still to this day want to be in a band. Yeah, I'm the I'm same way. Like in that kind of band. I want to be in a band that's like that's out playing all the time, you know, getting better, writing right. uh, in a van, driving around. Like I I want to be in a band. Right. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to put a band together, especially when you get older. Yeah, I'm sure. Because everybody's got families and children and they're tired and, you know, yeah. they're don't you know they 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 don't want to you know they just they, they don't have the time for it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but but that's always been my thing and that's what it was like playing with peter larry fast was the keyboard player mm -hmm. tony levin was the bass player i was the drummer and the guitar players uh, rotated there it took a, a while to find the, the the ultimately the guy that worked best for the band and that was david rhodes right but once david came into the picture he was the guitar player that was mm -hmm. it mm-hmm so, so what I know that, um, on Sledgehammer, I, uh, who played on that Mano Katia, I think probably Mano. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you've, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I feel like I should ask you because maybe you do, maybe you don't. I heard that to, for the bass sound and I could, I don't know, even know where I heard this. So it could be totally false, but, um, that they took, they took the bass player and they just had him play the bass line numerous times over top of each other. And that's how they got this weird, like thick bass tone that was sort of like almost, not, I don't want to say out of time, but it was sort of like rounded. And there was because there was pulls and pushes from his, his natural feet playing, you know, from, from take to take. Yeah. I don't know. I'll, no? I can ask Tony about that because he played on it, but, but, um, that it doesn't make sense to me because, as a drummer, I don't know how much you've ever in a studio. Like when you double, when you double snare drums, right? They don't get bigger; they get smaller. Yeah, like they kind of phase cancel, you know. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. sometimes people think like, let's pile, let's let's double the drums. We double the drums. You try to exactly double them. That doesn't make them sound bigger, right? And I'm not sure that the with the bass, although they may have, <clears throat> they may have recorded the bass differently. Every time they did it. And then put it on top of each other. Yeah. Exactly. 
And like I said, I could totally be making this up or like I I heard it somewhere and I don't even I don't remember where I heard it or how I heard it or what. And I was like, oh, let me because because if you hear it, like, I mean, the bass, the bass tone on on that tune is kind of it's it's a little different. It sounds different to me. It's a little rounded and like bubbly. Very Tony Levin. Play yeah. with a pit on a music man and pick, pick, picking up close to the neck. Right, right. Up and, uh, um, but you know what? It's so like Peter mm-hmm. to do something like that. Yeah. I mean, Peter, Peter, when he saw the stick, the Chapman stick, right? He 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 came in one day with thimbles, like previous <laughs> for sewing, and he th- he gave them to Tony and asked him to try playing the stick with thimbles on his fingers. <laughs> Um, but Peter's very creative in that way. Yeah. You asked me about Peter. I mean, Peter had such an overwhelming influence on the way I make music, on the way I hear music, on the way I play music. Really? I mean, oh, I mean, he, the guy just, and he wasn't like a school situation. Right. Because he didn't know either, but he was, his mind, it was his creativity open the door to try things right right try right. things and, and think outside the box long before that was a catchphrase yeah the experimenting and all that i w- i i remember once we did a track mm-hmm. this was in holland i forget which record it was for maybe the second solo record and robert fripp i think was the producer um and we cut this song and it was like a pop song and it sounded like a hit mm-hmm. in the studio working it out right right we go in the control room and then and play it back. And then Peter goes, we listen to it. Peter goes, okay, now that's exactly how we're not going to do it. <laughs> now we know how we're not going to do it. And we got that out of our systems. How are we going to do this? How? Well, like, he just didn't want it to be a pop. He didn't want it to sound like a pop record. Exactly. It just didn't appeal to him. It was like, and I, I totally get it. Right. You know? You don't do more upon the Burgermeister if you're trying to make a pop record. Of course. You know, Slow Burn or Modern Love or Waiting for the Big One. Yeah. Those records don't get made if you're trying to make kind of just appease the record company and yeah. have a hit. Right. He didn't want to do that. Yeah. That well, makes and sense. Thank God for that. But the guy was brilliant. Speaking of hits, and I know that you worked with, I know that you worked with Hall and Notes. I'm a Philly guy. I love Hall and Notes. I grew up listening to that. I actually just went and saw them uh, a couple. I, I love Daryl and John. Yeah, I just went and saw them a month ago here in uh, in Sacramento. Um, and uh, the one thing I heard about them too was like they weren't, they didn't want to be like these big hit makers. Like Tommy Mottola was saying that that these guys could just write hits in their sleep, and but they didn't want to. You know, they wanted to write. They wanted to write all these other tunes, uh, and and sort of, you know, in, by way or the same way that Peter Gabriel did. That like, let's try to make some things outside of the box here. We don't want to just write these pop tunes every day. Uh, I worked with Daryl and John, and no, no Tommy. I, I mean, I don't know about that. No. And if Tommy says that, but I mean, certainly Tommy Matola wanted hits. Of course. And just for the record, Tommy Matola didn't say this to me. He, I read it in his book. I don't want to. I'm like, I don't want it to make it sound like Tommy and I are sitting down having a conversation. No, but if you listen to like uh, Abandoned Luncheonette, right? That's such a great record. That's and they're so great so songwriters. Good. Great record. Um, the Silver record, great record. Mm-hmm. You know, um, their record. They made great records. What now, was the one that got? What was the one that got shelved? Um, Beauty on a Backstreet. Was it Beauty on a Backstreet? Yeah, it was the one. Okay. That they did it, I think, 
uh, before they did Along the Red Ledge. They did Beauty on a Backstreet. Todd Rundgren produced it. And I think it, because on the Silver record, which was before that, I think Sarah Smile was on that. Uh-huh. And so they had not, they had a hit. And then they had She's Gone was a hit. So, yeah. but I think uh, you, you can think, you, I think this was the order of things. And then, no, maybe they did Beauty on a Backstreet. And then they did, uh, did they do Along the Red Ledge first, one or the other? But I started playing with them. We did a record called Ecstatic, and, and David Foster produced that record. That was in 1979, right. 78, 79. And Daryl came to a Peter Gabriel show at the bottom line in New York. Uh-huh. We did one off at the bottom line. And I got a call from Tommy Matola the next day, who I had kind of known mm-hmm. anyway. And he was like, yeah, man, you got to come over to the Hit Factory. Daryl Daryl really wants to, you know, he wants to work with you. So nice. that was the beginning of my involvement with Daryl and John. And um, and then and then Daryl had been working on a solo record that Robert Fripp produced uh, called Sacred Songs. That is, I'm trying, I can't remember. There was one. one That's of the-, the thing with Daryl wanted. He was into that. Like, yeah. He really was into that alternative sort of proggy you know as much of a philly soul guy as he is yeah i mean he had daryl he had robert fripp produce his solo record mm-hmm. great record yeah I, I i actually was just listening to it the other day um there was one i and i don't remember which one it was but they were like they sort of wanted to go their own way and do this do this thing and it like it ended up not being that good of a record because it didn't have all these hits on it or something and and they mentioned the song and i can't man uh, what the hell is the name of that tune? Um, uh, man, I wish I, I wish I could remember. They actually played it at the show and I couldn't remember, man, I lost it. I, it was just in my head. Uh, is she a star? Do you know that tune? No. Okay. I forget what record it was. On. I'll have to look it up. But anyway, um, I know that they were, you know, they, uh, they mentioned in the show that they were like, you know, we tried to put out this record and it didn't turn out so well. So, so we went back to, uh, back to what we were doing. So anyway. I'm just looking Beauty on a Backstreet. Um, I was trying to see if there were. Oh, Chris Bond produced it. That's maybe that's not the right one. Which was the one that um, Don't Change? Why do lovers break each other's hearts? You must be good for something. The emptiness. Love hurts. Love heals. Bigger than both of us. Bad habits and infections. Mm-hmm. Winged bull. The girl who used to be. Love hurts. Blah 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 blah. So it's not that one. War babies. It's, War Babies. Yeah, that's, that's the, the record. That's, that's the record. The and they did it with Todd Rundgren. Yes, yes. Another Philly guy. Yes. Another Philadelphia guy. Yeah, and they were like, we don't want to put out these singles. We want to like, we and and it didn't do very well. That record tanked. Yeah. It's, and then it's a, was, it's a good record. I mean, it just doesn't have any, it doesn't have any hits on it. Right. You know, so I don't know. Anyway. Well, <laughs> I loved probably, I'd have to say my, my most fun gig in retrospect that i ever did was was playing with daryl and john yeah yeah i mean they were it's the blue it's the rock and soul thing i was gonna say that seems like it's right up your alley i grew up on the black r&b thing like them and, T- and todd rungren i'm working with todd as well you know the influence was philly and soul music yeah so but they're rockers too so daryl and john was like the high point for me yeah of playing live we we played we we th- those gigs were absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, I remember we did a gig at the um at the Rainbow in L.A. and and this is in 1979, 80. My brother came 
my brother was out there, my my brother Rick. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I got off this, walked off the stage, and my brother was sobbing, <laughs> sobbing. I'm not kidding you. He really? was overwhelmed, emotionally overwhelmed. That's how unbelievable that gig, that show was. Really, it's, we blew people's heads off. You know, it was just like the perfect moment and combination. Yeah. G.E. Smith was a guitar player. Nobody knew who he was. Mm-hmm. He was in the band. Uh, John Siegler, bass player that yeah. played in Utopia with Todd and myself and Charlie Deshant. Um, but I think I like to think I brought that element from Gabriel. Right. The, the thing that Daryl loved when he saw Gabriel's show and said to Tommy Matola, call Jerry, see if we can get him in the studio to work with us. You know, mm-hmm. I think I brought that element, um, the, you know, a left of center thing. Yeah. The amazing thing I always thought about Hall Notes was like, they're, they, they, they're sort of by all, by all standards, they're like a pop band, but they're amazing. You know, it's just like, they're, they're a pop band, but they're not, they just ha- they're just a really good band who, who, and they write really good songs and they can play their asses off. So, yeah. I mean, Daryl, I mean, the guy sings, plays, sings. John's great. John, I think, is more he's more of a, a well-rounded songwriter. Yeah. You know, Daryl's solo things don't really fly and you know what I mean? He mm-hmm. his uh, he, he's super talented. Both of them are. Right. And I, I loved playing with them. Yeah. I really did. I mean I missed I miss I missed it. And I they wanted me to stay with them. And I had been playing with Peter and I just didn't I I couldn't I didn't feel like I could leave peter i was i was so rooted into the gabriel thing right um i i i decided to stay at for two years i was playing with both peter and hall and oates oh wow i was going back and forth between recording and touring between those two artists and not too bad not bad a bad two gigs to bounce between no that that was like totally like that was heaven yeah so um but i i i mean as much as i love daryl and john I decided I was I was already had been doing the Gabriel thing for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and it, I was too deeply and you know, sure. I, I I didn't really feel like I could just walk away from that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, let's so let's fast forward now. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk about your new records because I know that like we're speaking of all these records, and you're we talked earlier that you have all these all these projects going on. So so tell us a little bit more about them. It's funny because I don't think about it that much because it's not really. We've been sitting on it for like six to eight months, but I've done a duo record. So to you, you're like, it's already done. It's already over. I'm moving on to the next. No, I'm excited about it. It's a great record. I've of done course. this record with, this, with a guy named Flav Martinelli of mm-hmm. uh, Flav Martin. It's Flavio Martinelli is his name, but okay. Flav Martin. So it's a Flav Martin, Jerry Murata record. He plays guitar, phenomenal guitar player, singer, and writer. Mm-hmm. Italian, you know, here, but also very deeply rooted into Italy and speaks Italian. And that's we're, that's on on the verge of of coming out in some way. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited about that and the future. And then I have this group called the Fragile Fate that I've been working on for years with Rupert uh, Greenell from The Fix, keyboard mm-hmm. player band called The Fix, and a guy named Eric Taylor who lives in Rochester, who's a phenomenally talented guy who's not particularly a professional musician although he should be and is really the mastermind behind fragile fate 
So I don't know if you've heard any of that. I have. Uh, AJ sent me some. Yeah. Yeah. So there's Fragile Fate, which is really it's ambient. Yeah. It's, it's an good. ambient thing. I love that. So there's there's that going on. Um, there's a security project, of course, mm-hmm. uh, which is that you know with the thing with Traygon, Michael Kotze, uh is the guitar player, Happy Roads, and David Jemison is a keyboard player. Right. So that's a fantastic group of people, and live the band is absolutely devastating. So I know that you guys are playing you're you're playing the music of Peter Gabriel. Are you guys doing it differently? Are you playing it the way? I mean, are you are you changing things? Are you rearranging things? How does that work? We're not going out of our way to do that. Right. Like if you're familiar with the security record, mm-hmm. with Lay Your Hands on Me, yeah. Family Fishing Net, um, San Jacinto, um, Wallflower, like you can't really rearrange those songs. Right. I mean, Lay Your Hands on Me is an epic. They're ep- I call them the epics. There's really not much you can do to them. Right. But what we are, little by little, we're rearranging. We have a new version of I Don't Remember mm-hmm. and um, and I, An Intruder. We've kind of revamped those two songs. Okay. And it's taken some time to figure out how to do that because those those songs are so powerful. Peter's music is so powerful. It's like how do you – you know, you take like New York, New York, Frank Sinatra, you know, like – you know, what are you going to do to that? What are right. you going to make a, reg- a reggae out of it? <laughs> like, you know, it's it's a classic. Some of these songs, even like like um, you know, there are Beatles songs. Like, there's the uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. You know, the, there's song there's songs that are just so massively powerful and big. Yes, it's like what? How are you going to? Ch- what are you going to do to them to make them? It's already great. What you know? So we don't actively go out of our way to try to change everything right but when it's appropriate i mean we jam Mm -hmm. on stuff and then that's what'll happen we'll start playing i'll play like play a groove and then um trey will jump in and he'll start playing something and then it'll just morph into into one one of the songs right so but mostly we're doing we're doing both so it's uh, and yeah we're doing we are doing both I think with Happy as the singer, it's helped us to get away from doing the songs in the style that Peter did them. Right, right. Because she's a female and she's she has a very different singing voice and a and different approach. Yeah, I was gonna say even even just tonal ranges will you know would probably be different. I'm guessing. Yeah, she's yeah. got a four octave range. Oh wow! So when you're singing the song like Intruder, it's really not. It's half spoken. You know, uh-huh. it's not really sung. So. Um, Intruder is one that we have a really great uh, a, a different approach to it, which I, I think is fantastic. So how are how are how does all this work? I mean, are you playing? How many gigs are you playing with each one of these bands? Are they sort of like sort of like side projects to where you're you're only playing a handful of dates a year? Or are they all like super active? Not enough at all with any one of them. Right. You seem like a guy that just you're like I want to just be playing all the time. Exactly. Yeah. And you know it's funny. Up until about a year ago, and and and, and uh, I've for the last five or six years, I was playing with a woman named Linda Etter, mm-hmm. who who was one of the way back when she won. She was the she won a show called Star Search. Okay, she was on a show called Star Search, and she won so many times that they had to figure out a way to kick her off the show. So they <laughs> really? retired as the reigning queen. And then started over again. And then she was one of the stars of a show called Jekyll and Hyde on Broadway. Uh, The woman sings like Barbara Streisand. 
I mean, so I've done, I was doing that gig for years. It's like Broadway standards, um, big band kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was so much fun to do. Just one more thing. Every month I was, I was doing, you know, she didn't do that many gigs, but we do three or four gigs a month. Right. So, but I love that. I love playing on all, with all these different people doing all these different things. Yeah. So, yeah. but I would love for one of these bands to be um, more active. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm getting deeper and deeper involved with a band called Annie and the Hedonists that, that do like music from like the, the early 1900s, like Louis Armstrong, Sippy Wallace, old blues songs, spirituals, nice. like, and like, but all phenomenal musicians. Um, and, and it, I have so much pl- fun playing with that band so much fun playing with them and but none of them none no band is working all the time right right which is i mean is that a good thing or bad you know it kind of like it, i guess it frees you up to to do other things right what will happen is if any one of them started to really take off and we started to work a lot then you either t- curtail some of the other stuff or you quit that band and the, the one that starts working a lot, right. if it's, you know, you, 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 you leave that band and sure. you know, continue doing all the other things. Uh, I'm not sure. What about, so what about the Murata brothers? Talk to me about that and, and how, what, what's, what's the dynamic with, with you and your brother playing drums at the same time? It's a lot of screaming and yelling at each <laughs> <Yeah>. other. <laughs> That's what I figured. Um, but don't dare fuck with either one of us. Cause we'll, we'll tear you down. <laughs> right. You <know? laughs> So no, I love my brother. He's obviously a huge influence on me. Right. Um, as a drummer, I mean, I have an older know, brother who's a drummer too, and we're both Italian, obviously. So I get. Oh, it. is that true? I That's get it. Funny. <laughs> so, but I, you know, I love Martha's Vineyard, and my brother lives there in the summer. Right. And I thought, you know, I think it would be great to do this gig, like a, you know, a a weekly gig on a Wednesday night, right in the middle of the week. So no, no issues with, with other band members. Right. I have some friends that live on Martha's Vineyard and they became a guitar player named John Zeman, keyboard players, Wes Naj. Um, and a good bass player is Zoe Zeman, the daughter of the guitar player. Okay. And, uh, and then we got this woman, Joanne Cassidy is the singer, but these guys are all playing every, almost every night on the vineyard. Uh-huh. It's a, you know, over the summer, it's a busy gig, gig thing. And, uh, so I figured if we do it on a Wednesday night, maybe everybody will be free. And they were. So I thought this will be fun. I'll get to go and hang out on the vineyard, get to hang out with my brother and see what comes out of it. It makes total sense that my brother Rick and I should do something together. Sure. You know? Yeah. So I, 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 I basically sort of, it was my idea to begin with, you know, my brother did not want to do it. He was, <laughs> He didn't see it at all the same way I did, you know, <laughs> but, um, so I, I went and looked for songs like old Ry Cooter songs, some old Bonnie Raitt songs, um, you know, like an old Bill Withers song, who is he and what is he to you? Right. I tried to find some obscure, but cool, funky, fun stuff to play. Mm-hmm. And I love that I, tune. That, that base, what, who is he and what yeah. is he to you? Yeah. yeah. Great song. But then I also wanted to do wait for it from Hamilton. From uh-huh. the show, yeah. I mean that. Have you heard that? I don't know that tune. No. Oh, go listen to that. That is so badass. It's insane. And uh, and then another part of me, which is 
a Michael Jackson song from the Captain EO thing, you know, down in Disneyland. Mm-hmm. There's a pavilion. They, there's a there's a ride that was and this whole thing was done in the 80s with it was George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola and Michael Jackson. And they filmed it. It's like Star Wars. It's like a 20 minute thing. And and this song, I heard it there. And they did a movie like Michael Jackson is like in, a, in and, and they're like all of these Star Wars puppets and like ejects. <laughs> it's, it's um, as you can imagine, it's remarkable. Of course. <laughs> but <clears throat> the song killed me. So I wanted to, we did that, you know. So we were doing a lot of different things. Right. Um, and it was really fun playing with my brother. Double drumming is not easy. I don't know if no, you've ever done I it. I have done it. It's not, I did. I actually did. I did double and then I did triple. Uh, so it's uh, both of them. Both instances were extremely difficult. Yeah. It's there's just like there's a whole other. It's not just playing, you know, the groove like the other guy is. There's, you know, you have to leave more space and this. I mean, it's hard. You don't want to hit kicks and snare drums on the, at the same time. You know, you want. Yeah. So, so, um, you know. Over the summer, we really you know, it was it was hard at first, mm-hmm. and then over the summer, it really started to dial in really big time. Yeah, and then guys like John to Christopher, people like that, they were just like, you know, man, this is awesome. It's awesome, you know. Right. You guys got you guys got to do this. You got to take this beyond Martha's Vineyard. Got to take the show on the road. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what? Uh, so are you? I mean, you guys. How often are you guys playing now? Well, now we don't play at all. No, he's in California and I'm in Woodstock. So is it just a summer? It's just going to be a summertime thing. It was just kind of like a, a summer love. No, but it started out. I mean, never to re repeat it again. No, it started out like I wasn't sure it was going to last two weeks, <laughs> but by the end of it, we were, we're, we're definitely going to do it next year. Uh-huh. And we want to do it more. I mean, we, you know, it's complicated because we, you know, we have to, we have to figure out how to make it happen. Right. And uh, so at the moment, uh, there's not much. We, we, you know, we're, we're, we're taking a break from it, but mm-hmm. we got to figure it out. Right. I was thinking maybe around at NAM, mm-hmm. maybe maybe do the NAM, maybe try to do the NAM show. And then my brother lives down in Florida in the winter. Okay. So maybe we would do, you know, three or four or five gigs in Florida. The guitar player also lives in Florida in the winter, and he plays in a lot of like rock clubs right. in South Florida. So he sort of had some connections to uh, to gigs that we could do, and uh, so we're like, look, we're looking into that. Man, I got to keep an eye on that because I I go down to Florida in the winter uh, every year. Not I'm not like a snowbird. I go my my in laws are snowbirds, so I go down there with my wife. Where do you go? Uh, Delray. Yeah. All right. So that's in the that zone. Yeah. And so if you guys are playing, cause there's not a ton going on down there. So <laughs> you'll definitely know. Yeah. I want to, yeah. I'd- AJ will know for sure because he's kind of, he's our social media guy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I want to, I want to know. If- I have high hopes for, for that. I, and you know, I, uh, to be honest with you in the back of my mind, I thought there's a lot of things that could come out of this. Not the least of which would be that somebody like, I'll just use him as an example. Clapton mm-hmm. might go, you know what? I'm going to go to, I'm doing a tour. Steve Gadd's playing with somebody else. Like I'm going to get the Murata brothers to do this <laughs> drumming thing. 
I'm going to, you know, like, and maybe not Clapton, but somebody, sure. you know, um, it very definitely could happen that somebody would go, that's a great idea, you know, and they're brothers and they know how to play together right. and they're blah, blah, blah. They like each other, whatever. And I'm going to get them. I want them to, I want to go out and tour with those, with them, two drummers. Yeah. yeah. So now I'm really having fun with it. I that's mean, I, awesome. I got to the point where I started to have a lot of fun with it. And I think, I think my brother did too. Good, good. So if people want to follow what you have going on, if they want to, you know, keep an eye on all your stuff, where are you on social media? Should they go to your website? What's the best way to, to stick? I mean, Facebook is the number one place and Instagram, Okay. but you know, I've got, if there's the Murata brothers, Facebook page and you know, you got to go and friend us, right? There's Jerry Murata page. I'm, a, I'm doing all this what right now while we're talking. So there's a dreamland, you know, and, and AJ knows all about all of this. There's, there's the dreamland, uh, Instagram and website. There's reeling in the years, which is the steely Dan thing. You can go up and, and there's a, a Facebook page for that. Um, what else? Annie and the hedonists. I, uh, there's, I don't know what we've got. There's a Facebook page, I think for that. And that's, that's this year's, I mean, I'm adding that to the, to the pile of, of different projects, but that's gonna, that's gonna definitely take up more time as well. Cool. Um, and I love playing with them. So yeah, I mean, how do people find out about things? Social media, uh, Instagram is a big one. Okay. And, or, uh, and not the least of which is to call me, Jerry Murata at eight, four, five, six, seven, nine, five, eight, three, two, and ask me what's going on. What's happening? Where is there a gig? Where is there a gig? But more reasonable would be to email me. Either send me a message on Facebook, or people could email me at jermarotta at AOL, J-E-R-M-A-R-O-T-T-A at AOL.com. I mean, seriously, I mean, that's my phone number. That's my email address. I mean, if people want to like personally know what's going on, then email me. You know? I like it. I like it. But I, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on and, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. And you guys better not spam call him and, and bug him. Well, yeah, don't <laughs> spam call me. But if you got a legitimate, you know, something to say right. or a question, you know, I'm, I'm happy, uh, I'm happy to, to talk to people. I love it. I love it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, I appreciate yeah, AJ hooking it up as well. Um, and thanks for, or, or I think we, I think you and I actually connected on Instagram. I think that's what happened right. I, originally. So, um, but I do appreciate it. It was, it was absolute pleasure having you, man. Anytime you want to come back, I would love to, I would love to have you. I'd love to chat more. Keep in touch, come East, come up to Woodstock and visit, man. That would out. be great. Come and stay. There's plenty of room. That would be amazing. I'll probably see you out. And I have friends in Petaluma. Okay. Yeah. And I'll come out. I'll end up out there at some point during the year. Great. Yeah, if you're coming out, let me know or let AJ know. Maybe, you know, all of us can get together. Absolutely. So, good deal. All right, Jerry. Thank you again. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Nick. There you have it, the one and only Jerry Morata. I hope you dug that. And if you want the show notes to everything that we talk about, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 317. I'll also put the links to his social profiles, all that stuff if you want to connect with him online. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Th- oh, wait, I almost forgot. Please leave a rating or a review. Just go to iTunes, leave a rating. It takes a minute and uh, and I'll love you for it. So you can do that. An honest rating and review, I would appreciate it on iTunes. All right. 
So what was I saying? Oh, yes. Until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.